This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week, we're going to discuss The Eyes of Texas, uh, the song used by the University of Texas at major events since 1903, and a song that's come under a lot of controversy recently. Uh, we are joined by a good friend and frequent guest, Professor Richard Reddick, who led a university-wide committee that examined the history of this song. And the committee's report that we'll talk to Rich about not only commented on the song, but I think had a lot to say about the ways we think about rituals, the ways we think about inherited traditions, and how we understand their uses uh, in our society today, a society that we hope is more conscious of diversity and different perspectives. Uh, Rich, thanks for joining us once again. Jeremy, good to be here. Zachary, good to be here with you as well. And it does feel like a sort of coming to the uh, familiar place in front of the fire with the slippers. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, with the Im- important beverage as well, right, Rich? Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, hot chocolate. <laughs> Rich Reddick, for those of you who don't know, uh, you should know him. He's the inaugural Associate Dean for Equity, Community Engagement, and Outreach at the College of Education here at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a distinguished professor in the program in higher education leadership, which is such an appropriate uh, background for him to have when addressing these issues. Uh, He's been on the faculty here since 2007. And in addition to that, uh, many of you have encountered Rich Reddick, I'm sure, because he's involved in every organization in every part of this country. It doesn't seem as if there's anything Rich is not involved in. He's the assistant director for the Plan to Honors program. He's associated with virtually every center on campus here. Uh, But most significantly, what I want to say about Rich is he's a public intellectual who brings serious research and thinking about race and education to our public discussion in a way that that almost no one else does. And that's, I think, why he was the perfect person to chair this uh, deep analysis of the eyes of Texas uh, and its role at the university and why he's such a good person to talk about these, these issues. Before we turn to our discussion with Rich, we have, of course, uh, Zachary's scene-setting poem. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? The Spirit Lives. Let's hear it. As if we are angels, we stand upon a dock and sing. Like the pictures in a textbook, we stand together in a ring and call forth from their cliffside lairs our demons and our nightmares as prayers. As if we were angels, we dare to look around and pierce the clouds with memories we know have run aground. Tis not the time for croaking, says the old man to the bard. Tis not the time for loving, but we do it just the same, said the bard back to the man, sitting in a corner, lame. As if we all were angels, we sat upon a dock, and with our voices began to mock the shriveled history of the decades past that we had conquered, neat and fast. But the very words that indeed we sung crawled out and swallowed all our little tongues. Right then they had remembered their true meanings and broken up our gaily spoken streamings. The spirit lives, the old man cried. The spirit lives, and then he died. <laughs> you know, you know I, Zachary, you have to have those written down so I can sort of scan and do the, tent, the scansion and 
and analyze it because <laughs> that's good stuff, man. Thank you. I, I, I love the sarcasm in that also, Zachary. I mean, there's, there's a little bit of a pointed wit. What is your poem about? My poem is really about the ways in which we think we can interact with these artifacts of our history on on a daily basis without acknowledging that history, without interacting with that history at all, as if we can sort of deal with these remnants of our past and treat them as if they're completely modern and only have the meanings that, that we feel them to have today. Right. But the meanings change over time, right? Exactly, right. Uh, Rich, that that seems to me to be one of the central insights of this really uh, elaborate and well-researched report that that you chaired the writing of. Uh, What are the most important facts, the historical foundation for understanding the eyes of Texas as it exists today? Well, you know, Jeremy, I'll I'll, I'll start playing like a history uh, scholar. and, And I have to actually, you know, shout out my history professor in graduate school, Julie Rubin, who trained me in historical methods. And so I think I, I learned a few things from, from Dr. Rubin. And, you know, working alongside uh, the historians on our committee, uh, both professional and uh, the folks who work outside the academy, um, you know, the first thing is like presentism, right? Sort of using a, a, a lens or a perspective that is cognizant of the values and the, the sort of experiences of the current time and analyzing things in the past with those kinds of conceptions. And, and that's usually going to lead you to some problems, right? Because the world was different. And, and that's something that is sometimes difficult to grapple with. The other thing I think is really important is the fact that, um, and Bill Brand said this really well, and, and, and that's what Bill does. He kind of pops in and just drops in these like bon mots. He just says these two or three sentence things. You're like, wow. He said, you know, statues and buildings are static. You know, when they're erected, they look the same. They may get a patina on them. They might age a little bit, but they're the same. A song, a painting, um, every time that's viewed or sung or interpreted, it's slightly different. And a lot of times the interpretations and the singing are the same as the one before. But every so often, there's a use of it that's different. Um, and to me, the dynamism of this particular piece of ephemera, right, is, is really important because if, if this was a building that kind of resided there and had this sort of origin, perhaps it's inescapable. I would posit that uh, a song, because of its uh, utility, Sorry. not just in the, um, you know, in one context, but in multiple contexts, Sorts of sort of makes me think that there was something else going on and something interesting to to sit with. And some of those things are incredibly problematic and upsetting. And some of those things are really enlightening. And, you know, I think you can say the history of this university can be told through the history of the song in a lot of ways. And and just to put it out there, Rich, you're one of many uh, scholars uh, who has gone on record, and, and I think you said this on an earlier podcast of ours, uh, who supports removing certain statues and even changing certain names. And Absolutely. So, right. So, so maybe just to, to build on what you said, why is a song different? Because that, that might su- surprise people. Yeah, I, I think it has to do with this idea of a dynamism. And, and so one thing that was really kind of great about our committee. And I was talking to our good friend, Victor signs and Victor's on the committee. 
and uh, we were talking. He was like, you know, Rich, I really wish that people got to sit with us in our deliberations and hear from Michael Ray Charles or Charles Carson, who are experts, you know, in ethnomusicology and in art interpretation. Um, and hear them talk because I, I think many of us came in with sort of mindsets that were fairly fixed. You know, this is what I understand. This is what I, under, this is what I've seen. I feel a certain way. And what these experts were able to do was to sort of challenge those ways of thinking. Um, and in particular, I think when these other artifacts are sort of presented, what you end up with is, sort of something that is mired in its in its context right it, it can't overcome that right the person who built this the person who operated in the space um seems to be fairly permanent the songs are are quite different because the meaning of a song and the way the song is interpreted and you know i'm reminded of a, a great quote that i don't remember who said this to me but i think it was matthew mcconaughey actually so you know, he made the point of... That's a nice name drop there, Rich. Well, it is. Uh, you know, it's going to get even better because uh, those of us of a certain vintage are U2 fans. And U2's album, Rattle and Hum, oh, yes. 87, comes oh, out. Yeah. And it starts off with the song Helter Skelter. And Bono says, this is a song that Charles Manson stole for the Beatles. We're stealing it back. Um, the ownership, the definition, the contours of a song... Um, are often reinterpreted and recast. Um, and so I think that's the thing that makes it different. And there are utterances such as hearing the song sung by Barbara Smith Conrad, who was a precursor, one of the first African-Americans uh, to attend UT. And her, her story is quite a story. And I encourage people to either read about her or track down the documentary When I Rise, which came out in 2010. And this is a woman who came to UT in the first class of freshmen who were African-American who were allowed to come in 1956 and was selected to be part of the uh, school opera cast opposite a white male student. Her state representative found out about this and said, if this happens, the university is not going to have a good budget this year. Hmm. And so she was then removed. And from that removal that was delivered to her by the Dean and then by the president and Harry Belafonte and Zachary, I know you don't know who he is, but Harry Belafonte. I do, was, I do. Okay, good, good, good. Okay, you give me hope because so many of your generation are like, who is that? Um, Harry Belafonte says to her, calls her up and says to her, I will pay for you to go to school anywhere in the world um, if this is not the place for you. And Barbara goes home to her, her dad and talks to him and he says, you know, it's your choice. And she says, you know, this is my home state. I'm not going to leave. And she finishes her degree here and has an amazing career, literally as a diva, uh, <laughs> plays Marian Anderson in the TV movie about uh, Roosevelt. Ah. And of course, Marian Anderson was not able to sing in the Daughters of the American Revolution Hall and ended up singing on the steps of the, of the Lincoln Memorial. Right. Very impactful moment in our history. Um, Barbara comes back, a distinguished alumna. And, you know, starts contributing and doing all these wonderful things to, to build a legacy uh, of helping singers and other musicians. And in 2000, she's at commencement and she sings the Eyes of Texas. And if you say to me, the Eyes of Texas, you know, 1903 minstrel show 
Origins is the same song that Barbara Smith Conrad sang in 2000, I, I don't I don't agree with you. I, I think that's an incredible sort of shifting of what that song meant, who sang the song, who, who it was sung to, and what it meant. So to me, that's, that's kind of the story. That's illustrative of, of many interpretations we saw. There's a lot of different variants of the Eyes of Texas from a Tejano version to, uh, you know, to a, um, you know, a mariachi version, uh, Gucci Mane, you know, famously on the uh, Jimmy Fallon show performs a trap right. version of it. Right. So the fact that this song has been reinterpreted and sampled and remixed, uh, I think is significant. And it doesn't, it doesn't negate the origin or the exclusion of African-Americans up until 1956, 1950-1956. But I think it's an important part of the conversation as well. The eyes of Texas are upon you all the live long day. The eyes of Texas are upon you. you've given us a a, a really compelling uh, example 
of how the the song is made and remade uh, by different singers in different contexts. Why do we keep returning to the song? Why is it so important to keep the song? Well, you know, I mean, I wrote a letter in the sort of preamble of the report, and I said something along the lines that, you know, traditions can't be mandated or coerced, right? Uh, Tuition, I mean, traditions endure because they they go viral, right? There's something about the moment or the tune or the song or the lyrics or whatever that just catch people's imagination and people can map other things onto it, right? So um, my thought is that um, it's spoken to people in different ways in different contexts uh, over time, right? Um, and what that means is that every time that song is sung or looked at or analyzed, there's a new chapter to be written. There's a new person singing the song. And I tell the story, and, and folks often don't often know the story about me, but I, I didn't grow up in Texas. I, my dad was in the military 26 years. I moved to Austin from Upper Hayford, England in 1986. And uh, that was the year that the Lady Longhorns were on a 34-0 and um, tear. They they went undefeated. And so unlike a lot of Longhorn fans, my first immersion into Texas culture was not through football, it was through women's basketball. And shout out to our Lady Longhorns who just had a great uh, tournament. That's, that's really awesome to think about. And I told this to Coach Conrad. I had a chance to talk to her about this and said, you know, at the end of the game, I remember watching a game and I remember at the end of the game, people put the devil horns up and started singing the railroad song. And I'm like, what am I witnessing here? This is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. Like, I, I couldn't even make sense of it. But then four years later, I'm a freshman on the campus and I'm learning the song. I'm an orientation advisor. And I'm like, oh, you know, and I'm talking to people who are telling me all these things that the University of Texas means to them. And, and so I think a lot of people had that experience where they were like, this is a weird thing. I don't quite get it. And then at some point it becomes part of the experience you have, right? Um, and then of course, um, you start learning that there's a longer and more, uh, robust history to it. And the history has some troubling parts to it. And what I've told people, Jeremy is like, you have to map onto this, just sort of how we sort of exist as a, as a cultural context, United States of America, how so many of our, you know, traditions, songs, uh, images, you know, have pasts that we grapple with and are very difficult to understand, uh, especially in the 20th, 21st century. Um, But they're also anchoring. They're also in some ways unifying, right? Uh, And so I think it's a combination of all those things. And what that means is that there is no easy answer. I think each person is going to have a different interpretation, a different feeling about it. And that might change over time. Um, one of the things about our committee work that was interesting is that many of our committee, uh, talked about this, you know, at a certain point in my experience, I felt the song had this meaning to me and I embraced it or I rejected it. And then I feel differently another point in time, um, much to do with what's happening in the world. So I, I think the fact that we're talking about this in 2021, or as I've said many times, the 15th month of 2020, um, you know, we're in a time of an incredible reckoning in this country about justice and racial justice um, 
exclusion, inclusion, all those things are up for discussion. And there's some real questioning about, you know, does America, you know, do I too sing America is, is the question that many of us are asking, right? Um, and so I think for this moment, um, it's an incredibly trying time for, for, for many of us. I would say all of us. Um, and I think that's why I made it very clear to people, my intention and my goal, and I think the committee would agree with me, is not to make people feel one way or the other about this song. That's a very personal journey. But it's to sort of lay out some information that we do know and also talk about how this the history of the song parallels the history of the state and this university and this community, quite frankly. Yeah, but uh, as you said, right, these songs, the people who have been singing them, the, their meaning to to huge swaths of the population has changed. But at the same time, what would you say to someone who says, uh, looking at the, uh, the very problematic messages that uh, were leaked to the press from donors about the song and, and, and other issues? other issues and say, but have those same, the, the same people who were singing this song in, in a problematic way in the past, are, are they still singing it today? And, and how can we grapple with it being used both in a welcoming way and in an exclusionary way? You know, Zachary, I think that's a good question because I, I, I don't think there's any way of inoculating any ephemera from people who we might uh, side with or agree with and think are, you know, sort of vocalizing our perspectives and people who are not, right? Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I, I learned as a UT student is that I ended up making friends with people who had very different perspectives than I had. And, and let me get very clear. I have no tolerance uh, and, and no, I give no quarter to racist, sexist, homophobes, transphobes, uh, people who um, believe that their uh, positionality allows them to tell somebody that they don't belong or they're not part of this community. I have no space for that. Um, and of course, you know, the ugliest and the most obnoxious sort of perspectives are the ones that are the ones that probably get the most attention. And, and I'll tell you, I, I got a lot of emails forwarded to me by the president's office and also directly to me, people saying, I hate the song, get rid of it. You know, what's mm -hmm. wrong with you? And I had people saying, I love the song, keep it, you know, and of course that wasn't our charge, but I got to see the variance of um, perspectives and, you know, the majority of people who wrote said things like, I feel very strongly about this. This is why I support it. I hope it stays, or I feel very strongly about this. This is why I don't think it should stay. And they, they kept it civil. And, you know, the fact that some people believe that because they hold a certain societal position that they can tell people, go somewhere else. I mean, that's right out of the 1950s. That's the same thing in the When I Rise documentary. There's a moment where Barbara Smith Conrad is sitting in the Briscoe Center archives reading letters. And some letters say, you know, the University of Texas is making a huge mistake. How can you not let this, this young woman sing this song? And some people are like, right on, you know, keep Texas white, you know. So it, it brings us back to that space, but it brings us to a larger question, Zachary, which is like, we are still grappling with the same issues that were prominent 70 years ago. Right. And we've made some progress, of course. It's, it's products so we didn't make progress. But it's also something we need to consider that, you know, the dialogue and the understanding of our, you know, humanity as people 
not everybody understands that at this point in time. And what do we do? You know, um, we can be incensed about it, or we can try to say, well, could we use this moment and this song and this particular history as a learning tool to enlighten people that, you know, some of the things you hear today were uttered 70 years ago. Um, and some of the things you hear today, people took these as forms of protest, forms of amplifying their voice, uh, forms of feeling a sense of belonging. That's all part of the story. And the story isn't right. linear. That's the thing I think is most important. Um, even people who said, you know, I love the eyes of Texas. The report is great. I'm like, did you read the report? <laughs> because there's a lot in the report that's not laudatory about the University of Texas. Right. Um, and I think a fair reading would have you sort of negotiate the things that are challenging and problematic and frustrating and upsetting with the things that are positive. It's, it is the most American sort of narrative I can think of. Right. And in some ways we have the privilege of, of, of having these people still around. I mean, this isn't, this is pretty recent history, right? And we have, we have the ability to actually go back and ask people what this song meant to them. And we shouldn't ignore that. We should take that into account. You, you know, having the opportunity to work in a multi-generational committee with people who were on campus in the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, the current day, um, was amazing because you often think that you understand or you have a perspective and there's a lot of reframing that takes place. Well, what if you went to school at this time? Then how do you feel? What if you went to school at this time and then you watch the university develop over the last 10, 15, 20 years? Then how do you feel? Um, that was a huge part of the realization. I think moving out of our sort of generational cohorts and talking to people in different spaces and saying, well, what's your story? And of course, the people who had, you know, longevity, I think, were the ones we often were like, wow, that's a cool story. What was it like to be on campus when these things were happening? And, and that to me was the most amazing thing. And I, I would say what I would encourage people to do is to talk across generations about this, just get a sense of what people were experiencing. Um, and not just the song, but just what was happening on campus. What were the priorities? Who was included? Who was excluded? So, so Rich, one of the really impressive parts of the report, and I hope all of our listeners will will read it, um, not just for the history of the eyes of Texas, but for another point, uh, the ways in which these rituals, these ephemera, get so deeply embedded um, in in our society, in our traditions, and get used in so many different ways. You, your report captures this and is filled with descriptions and photos. Um, it, it enlightened me on all the different different ways in which this song is embedded in our society. And I was thinking about the American flag as well mm. and the ways in which the American flag is embedded in our society. It's a piece of historical ephemera too, and how it's been used uh, in civil rights marches, but also been used in lynchings, how it's right. appeared in uh, wars against fascism, but also appeared in places where military force was perhaps misused. Uh, the ways it was part of Obama rallies and Trump rallies. Right. And, and, and so what your report really prompted me to think about, Rich, and, and, and I think th this might be sort of the, the, the most important question taking this history forward, how do we encourage the positive uses? Uh, how do we take these rituals that matter so much to us, as you've described so brilliantly, and in, in helping give us, giving us a sense of community and connection? 
how do we take these problematic rituals and make them more positive as we go forward? What a great question and what a great analog to think about the the flag is is one of those things, right? And I'm I'm from military family, so this is interesting, right? Because uh, I was the guy in ROTC who did the flag, you know, drill and folded the flag and, you know, revelry at five o'clock. Anybody's military kid knows this at five o'clock on a military installation, you stop and face the flag and salute, right? Um, and you're exactly right. Um, the flag has been used as an accountability. Like, this is also my flag and it stands for something and we have not lived up to what the flag stands for. Uh, and in some places it's, this flag is not representative of my experiences. Um, I think it starts with an honest appraisal uh, of the information. And I've written about this before. Uh, and it's funny how um, people will sort of ascribe perspectives to you. But you can look at my research record, right? You can look at what I've written in public scholarship. And I've written about, you know, the danger of propagandizing history, Right. When the uh, United Doors of the Confederacy sort of set in motion this concept of the lost cause. And so many of us grew up. Uh, I attended Johnston High School. I was on the Confederate yearbook um, staff. I wrote for the Shiloh newspaper. I mean, I, need I go on? I mean, this is sort of what we were immersed in, in the normalization of the lost cause as like, this is totally fine. And usually when you're in Dr. George Wright's class as a, 19 year old, you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> that is a different story than what I was told before. So I think the honest appraisal, and I think you have to think of this as a, as a journey, right? There is no need to have a immediate reaction to confounding information or complicating information. You can take the time needed with it and you can develop a, a perspective over time. And um, I, I think if, if we had simply said, well, the song is going to stay or it's going to go, let's just move on. And instead have said, let's look at this history and use it as a learning tool. Um, there's incredible opportunity for us to think about not just this campus, but this community. I mean, it's, it's a coincidence, but the week before our report came out, the city council um, came out with the apology to... Uh, the city, I mean, the city apologized for the 1928 uh, city plan. Right. If we're not thinking about these things in connection with each other, then we're missing an opportunity. And I, I see this as an opportunity for leadership. Um, I've heard people say, well, don't you think that this is a distraction for recruiting and athletics and, you know, recruiting students? And I'm like, I would rather people come to the University of Texas and know that we are having an honest and difficult conversation and reflection moment than just move over, move past it. That's convenient. That's probably the PR thing to do. But honestly, universities are a place where we take on what we call the wicked problems, right? right? Right. Complex, thorny, previously unresolved issues, and we work on them. And so maybe that solution is not present or apparent to us now, but it starts with this engagement, I think. And so I, I totally get it. I've talked to people on both sides of, you know, keep the song, get rid of the song. And they've said to me, I want to move past this. And I've said to them, I know we're fatigued in a lot of ways, but this is the history and, and we have to reckon with it. And, and, 
like I said, it doesn't mean you have to become a fan of the song or you have to become an opponent of the song. It means you have to, when it's convenient, when it makes sense to you, when you have the mental space to do it, reckon with it. And and that's, it's University of Texas. It's, a, it's the song. It's our symbols. It's our it's our political parties. It's our geographical spaces. It's all those things. And so maybe this is an exemplar and a starting point for those conversations that we have to have. Maybe. Rich, I think that's such an insightful comment. And I think it, it actually builds on the wisdom of our jurisprudence. Uh, we've long had in place the recognition that the American flag is our national symbol, but that you and I and any citizen uh, is not under any obligation to worship it in a particular way. Other countries require people to worship their flags. Yes. We don't. Uh, we can react to it as we wish. We can stand and salute it. We cannot stand and, and salute it. And and I think it opens a space for exactly this dialogue. And every generation of civil rights activists has grappled with this. Uh, what, what relationship should we have to the flag? Uh, Martin Luther King has a different approach to it than Malcolm X. And our, our good friend, Peniel Joseph, has written a lot about this. And that's a productive conversation. And, and I interpret what you're saying is that we should use this moment to create these kinds of productive, if difficult, conversations around these issues. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly it. And we have to start with you know, setting norms for conversations, right? Uh, and, and ensuring that people's perspectives are respected. And one of the most disturbing aspects of all of this is the fact that when we had student leaders and student uh, uh, athletes vocalize concerns, they were treated horribly uh, or they were told that they didn't have the right kind of respect and reverence. And in fact, that was disrespectful. Um, you can look at this from multiple perspectives in your world, your life experience, the way that, you know, you have shaped, you know, experience has shaped your, your life will impact how you understand this. And that is valid. And what I, I said to a number of, of uh, student leaders is like, you know, thank you. Thank you for making this an issue that couldn't be ignored or moved past that we had to reckon with. Um, Because if you hadn't, then the feelings of exclusion and marginalization continue. Um, the divisions grow deeper. And frankly, I think that's what needs to happen. We, again, we need to be in those spaces that we actually sit with complex things. And we do it in community. And we do it with a sense of support that people can change how they feel about things. And people can talk to each other and hear from people who have different perspectives. And account for those perspectives and think about, well, can I have the ability to empathize with your perspective? Even if I don't agree with it, can I at least understand where you're coming from or how you come to think about what you think about? And it moves beyond a song to life experience. My experience is interacting with the educational system, with criminal justice system, with the legal system, you name it. Those are all things we have to we would all benefit from having an understanding of people from a broad spectrum of perspectives talking about those things. So what you've defined, Rich, I think is the dream of democracy that we all strive for and that our, that our podcast in many ways is about, and you've articulated it and exemplified it so beautifully. Zachary, do you find among, um, 
other young people like yourself uh, when you discuss issues, as I know you do on the Diversity Council at school and in other contexts. Do you find that um, rituals, ephemera, like the Eyes of Texas, that they can create this productive conversation or not? And if not, what can we do to move into the space that Rich articulates so well? You know, if if I'm honest, I, I think that there's a real issue with how we discuss these kinds of ephemera um, and, and rituals uh, as young people. I found that that it's really hard to have a conversation that doesn't either lapse into platitudes or become simply about uh, being either a racist or or not a racist and that there's only one correct side of an issue. Um, And I think that it's really important. I I, I think that the core issue is that we as a society are really struggling with, 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 with grappling with the complexity of our history. And it's really hard for us as Americans, to accept that our history can be both one of oppression and one of freedom and democracy, and that those two can coexist and that they do coexist. And I think that the the issue of, of rituals and ephemera really highlights that and, and brings that out. It's really hard to talk about. I think that's right. I find that among uh, adults, among scholars, among colleagues, uh, it's very hard to avoid these um, overstated platitudinous generalizations that have some truth to them, of course, but that make it very hard to find common common ground. Uh, Rich, final question: uh, Where do you hope we are on this topic in five years? What 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 should we be talking about when we do a retrospective on your report? It's republished, and you write a new introduction to that volume before it's read by people all across the country. What what, what will we say in five years? Well, you know, first of all, the professors, Suri, are always great to engage with. Zachary, that was an amazing uh, reflection, which is what I think I, I've come to understand as well, the complexity and sitting with um, the angels and the devils, right, at the same time, right? Um, and our, our urge to say, well, no, this, this, is, this is inherently good or mostly good, or this is inherently bad and mostly bad, and realizing actually it's not that simple. Um so something I told um, our friends in the media the day that the report was released was, you know, I'm glad you're here today, but I hope you come back in a year, in two years, in five years, in 10 years. Because the, the end of the report, the fourth charge uh, from President Hartzell was, what are the things that we can do to educate the community about the eyes of Texas and use it as a tool for learning and understanding? And so... To me, that's where the energy and the excitement is. Those 40 recommendations for the 40 acres uh, and some other things that we put in there that were not necessarily recommendations, but things that we thought needed to be addressed are opportunities. Uh, and you know, if the Eyes of Texas is, in fact, an accountability song, can the university, in fact, be accountable? Because we've talked a lot about conversations, and conversations are the starting point. But conversations have to be supported with meaningful action. Um, and that is a, a charting of many actions that the community and the committee felt could be taken and should be taken um, to move in a direction together. And, and there's the, the opportunity for reconciliation is there, but we have to, first of all, confront the truth. And, um, you know, my hope is in five years, we can say the University of Texas led in this space. Um, you know, the first time it happened, it looked like it was really rough and people were really polarized, but, you know, people started having conversation. People started working together and planning on, uh, meaningful actions that made the campus more inclusive and welcoming. 
And we are still humbly trying to do better. Uh, we have not arrived, but we are certainly on the way to that direction. And we can chart the progress and um, um, what we've done. We have metrics. We have uh, accountability measures to understand what we've done. And we've made some mistakes. We tried some things that didn't work, but it was all in the spirit of trying to move towards a more inclusive and welcoming space. So, you know, I think people often think the trajectory is going to be completely uphill, right? And, you know, I'm talking to a historian and a, a very wise uh, future academic in, in Zachary. And you all know that's not the way things work. So we have to calibrate our expectations to, to be patient and understand that if we are resolute and working towards this goal, we have to also have uh, the ability to reflect, to change direction if we need to. Uh, but most importantly, stay committed to this cause. And I think it's a cause that I've been sort of surprised at how many people have said, I want to do work in this space. Right. Like, I think it's a problem that people don't feel included and welcome at the University of Texas. I want to change that in some way. Right. Right. You know, it, it reminds me of a lot of what uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who's in many ways the inspiration for our podcast, uh, what he said about the four freedoms. You know, we would articulate these freedoms that our society was about. We would recognize that we were far from their full achievement, but they would they would inspire us to keep talking and keep trying, and that's what democracy is. And and I think Rich, you 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 exemplify that, and your report uh, stands as a marker, as a historical marker for us. You've made history in pushing this conversation forward, and uh, we really appreciate your taking the time to talk to us about it and share your insights with our listeners. Th- thank you for being with us, Rich. Well, well thanks, Jeremy, and, and thanks, Zachary, and you know. I say this with the most humility I can muster is that uh, the committee I worked with were simply an amazing group of people who volunteered their time. Um, I always make the point that Andrew Vo, a committee member, called in from tomorrow. He was in Singapore. And so he would call in from Friday morning on our Thursday evening calls. And it just exemplifies that people, you know, juggled babies and, you know, worked around dinner and all the different things to be part of this. And, uh, people often said, well, what are you, what was your process like? And I'm like, you have to understand our process was we met on certain days, but people were working throughout the week. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a labor of, of love. And, um, I think that's something that I'm very humbled by the fact that 25 people committed to doing the work in that same manner. And, and so, yeah, I, I just think this is a super, exciting to talk about it. And I know we're going to have more conversations. I don't think I necessarily reckoned that we'd have more work to do, um, <laughs> you know, and certainly I'm, I'm up for it, but it's, it's sort of like finishing the report was only the first part. That's of right. This. That's right. That's um, right. And folks are ready to have this conversation. So I look forward to having more conversations. Well, the, the, well. uh, this is true about all of our scholarship, Rich. We write the report or we write the book, but the readers finish it. That's and, right. And we're part of that process. Zachary, uh, thank you as always for your poem, your insights, and your perspective. And most of all, thank you to our loyal listeners. Uh, thank you for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.